And that includes you. Every week when we come together, it's our prayer that what happens here reaches a, a broad diversity of people because I know each Sunday there are many people here who have loved Jesus and followed him for 50 years. And it's our prayer that every week that we're here, there are some people here who are just learning about the good news of Jesus. We open the Bible, the Bible, and especially the Gospel of Luke, is intended to convey this good news which God offers to all people. I thought it would be helpful just to remind everybody of where we're going today. You can see in front here, um, we're going to celebrate communion together. And it is really the culmination of our service to eat a piece of bread and drink a cup to remind ourselves that the greatest thing that has ever happened in our life is that we have come to know Jesus as our Savior and that He has forgiven our sins and we belong to Him by faith. The whole arc of the history of the Bible is from the book of Genesis, God created all of us in His image. We departed from His plan and we're all sinners and God worked in the Old Testament giving prophets to call his people to follow him, but promised that there would be a redemptive work in the, for the fallenness of mankind that would come in one who was called the Messiah. And then the New Testament begins, and sure enough, on the scene comes Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and before him, a forerunner or a herald who would tell people to get ready to receive Jesus. And then the rest of the New Testament up for the first four books is about the life of Jesus and the work of Jesus on the cross. And he's on the cross and there he dies for sinners that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And he dies and he's buried and he's raised again and he ascends into heaven and he's in heaven today calling men and women to believe in him and that he's going to come again and make all things right and rescue those who have trusted in him and he's going to judge those who have not. That's the arc of the Bible. And we enter in in Luke chapter 3 in a section that I preached on three months ago. Do you remember? <laughs> no, you don't. So we're going to preach it again. Uh, I, I want to share some of those, those things because we enter into this part in the history where the four Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, tell the story of Jesus from four different perspectives, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But it is all about God sending his son into the world because he loves us in our broken sinfulness. And God takes care of our sinfulness by the life and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that when Jesus was about to go to the cross, he celebrated the Last Supper and he said, here, take this bread. This bread is my body, which is for you. It represents my death on your behalf. So later in the service, if you should choose to participate in this remembrance, it will be because you personally have trusted in Christ as your Savior. 
And the cup is the representation of the full cleansing of the blood of Jesus Christ. For without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. But with the shed blood of Christ, you can be fully forgiven of your sins as you trust in him. So communion is perhaps the highest expression of worship that a collection of people can have together that we all say, Jesus, you have forgiven me and you are my Savior. And when we do it together, I believe the Holy Spirit of God dwells with us and gives us the, the rich experience of celebrating his life in us. There's a warning before you take communion, though. And the warning is that you should examine your heart and look inside. Are you truly trusting in Christ? Are you turning to Him for forgiveness? Are you right with Him? Otherwise, don't eat and don't drink. But examine our hearts. So my prayer as I preach this morning is that you'll have a deep sense personally of self-examination. Because we're going to break into the story of John the Baptist entering the scene, and his message is about turning your life over to Jesus. Now, many of you have already done that. But he was... Okay, there you go. But he was speaking to people who were... This was news. And for some of you today, this could be news. That God actually asks you to respond to Jesus in faith and to ask Him to forgive your sinfulness. You might even say, well, who says I'm a sinner? And I'd say, God says we all are. But let's get to the text. If you have your Bible, let's open to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. That's the arc of the, of the Bible message. And now we break in where we've gone through chapters 1 and 2, the birth of Christ, the birth of John the Baptist. And in chapter 3, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Trechonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Ananias and Caphirus, and Annas and Caiaphas, excuse me, the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now that sets the scene politically of who's running. Jerusalem and the Roman Empire, and who's in the spiritual realm, the leaders of the day, that's the high priest Annas and Caiaphas. And the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah. Those of you who have read chapter 2 know that Zechariah and Elizabeth had a miraculous They gave birth to a son named John, and in chapter 1, and verse 76, Zechariah says in a prophetic word, you child will be called the prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. You will give the knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. 
That's Luke chapter 1, verse 76, where the father of John the Baptist prophesies after he had been nine months without speaking, this child is going to be a prophet of God. He's going to go before the Lord to prepare his ways and to give the knowledge of salvation to his people through the forgiveness of their sins. Enter chapter 3, John the Baptist is on the scene, and it's not surprising then in verse 3 that we see the mission of John the Baptist, and he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So you see the whole flow flowing here is that John the Baptist comes on the scene. What do you know about John the Baptist? You know that he was... Um, he was a guy who went out in the wilderness, probably at the age of 15, maybe 13, maybe 20, and he lived out there for 10 years or so in the wilderness, and God ministered to him, and he studied the scriptures, and he knew all of the Old Testament, and he comes on the scene here to be the one who is just before Jesus comes on the scene in Jerusalem. John the Baptist's ministry is this, he comes to announce that there is one coming after me and you need to get ready for him. Prepare the way of the Lord. You need to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins with a heart of repentance. And in Jerusalem, they had been waiting 400 years for another prophet to arise. But if you know in the Old Testament, the very last verse of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter um, five, you, you see these verses where there's going to be a prophet who's going to come on the scene. It turns out that the prophet that was prophesied in the last verses of the Old Testament is none other than John. And so after 400 years of no new prophetic word from God, John enters the scene, and this is his first statement. You need to be baptized with a repentant heart for the forgiveness of your sins. Prepare the way of the Lord. And it turns out that people were ready for him to come. Because if you hadn't heard from somebody for 400 years, God, you, you'd be eager to hear this, this word. So what I want to do this morning is to give answer four questions about repentance. And I think it will prepare us for communion. And as we move to communion, I would just say, well, what is repentance? If this is John's message, what is repentance? The word means to turn or to change, not just in your mind, but in your whole life purpose. So if I am living this direction and God says, hey, repent, you know, with a sandwich sign, the end is near. What does that mean? It means that the direction I'm going has to change and God is asking me to turn my life back to him. That is the way in which a person first becomes a Christian, but I would argue that it is the whole course of the life of a Christian to be turning to God from sinfulness to holiness, from myself to God. The repentance is turning to Him. And it turns out that sometimes we have to repent on Sunday morning. We have to repent on Sunday afternoon, 
even though we've known Jesus for 25 years, because we're prone to wander, don't you feel it? And so the life of repentance is turning back to him, turning my life to him. I think the next verses actually describe in, in metaphor what repentance looks like. So let's look at the next verses, um, beginning at verse 4. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, here's what repentance looks like. John is going to be the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, turn to the Lord and make it easy for the Lord to get to you. It's as if you, you want to make your life straight toward the Lord. So what has to be removed? Every obstacle has to be removed. And there are four of them that are stated here. One obstacle is that every valley needs to be filled up. This is highway construction language in metaphor. It's poetry, but he's saying if you're going to get ready for the Lord, every valley needs to be raised up. And I think of that as being every low place in your life, every dark and hidden secret that when you turn to the Lord, you say, Lord, everything that I've put down in the secret places of my life, I just want to bring it up to you and say, here are my dark, hidden, uncovered, low expressions of my sinfulness. And every valley just gets lifted up to say, Lord, here's my secret. And I want you to come into my life and I want to lift up everything that's been really low in my life. It's a metaphor. And every mountain and hill will be made low. What do you think that is? Have you ever said to God, I'm good? Every self-righteous, every prideful expression that I am good on my own. The, the picture of the metaphor is that repentance means that every lofty, prideful thought gets brought down and said, Lord, I'm nothing without you. So I want you to come to me. So every secret thing I'm lifting up to you, every prideful expression of a, a mountain of how great I am, <clears throat> I'm setting aside and I want to just say, Lord, I'm, I'm going to be low before you. Because I know you are opposed to the proud, but you give grace to the humble. And every crooked way shall become straight. I've been crooked. I've been out of order. I've not been the way I should be. So I just say to you, God, where I've been bent, I've been crooked. I've been twisted from what your plan for my life is. And I just pray to lift that up to you and ask you to straighten out my life. And where I've been rough, where I've been um, unthoughtful of you, I just pray that you will smooth it. Because what I want more than anything else is I want everything in my life to be a smooth road that the Lord could come to me. And so, Lord, I'm turning my life to you, and I want you to come. That's what repentance is. Got that? Any questions? It's like saying to God, I am turning from me to you. And everything about me that's been distorted or disordered, I'm turning to you to fix, God. I can't fix myself, but I'm just saying to you, my life is pointed toward you. 
and I am repenting of that. Whatever's not godly, Lord, I repent of. Okay, before we move, could I just say this before we go to communion this morning? Let's all do self-reflection. Whatever is not godly in my life, I want to turn from. That I will be prepared for Jesus Christ to fill my life. You do that? I bet we could each make a list of things and say, I, I want to turn. That's what repentance is. You doing okay? Because number two is, why is repentance necessary? And if you'll let me, I, I want to lean in to a piece of truth that you won't hear in a lot of places, but it's in the Bible. Why is repentance necessary? Next verse, verse 7. And he said, therefore, to the crowds that came to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Okay, context. These are, according to Matthew, the Sadducees and Pharisees. They're not named here, but it's the religious leaders of the day who were um, who were self-righteous. And a brood is the offspring of, offspring of poisonous snakes. I mean, it's really quite a statement. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee? Everybody looking at it? From the wrath to come. One of the things, why is repentance necessary? It's necessary because... There is wrath to come. That there will be a judgment that every human being will stand before God and give an account for our lives. We all must appear before Him. And there is wrath for those who reject Him. There is judgment. Now, before you get upset about that, we all want justice in the world, don't we? It really troubles us when there's not justice. When someone does something and they get off, which seems to be all over the place all the time, um, you know, we, we're, we're troubled by the way in which people can do things, and there is apparently no justice that comes from their immoral, dishonest, deceitful behavior. But the Bible confirms that there will be a day when every wrong shall be made right, and we will all appear before God. And this is... This, is, this has to create a bit of tension in us in which we feel a little bit of anxiety until we hear the whole thing, so don't leave till I get to point four or five, okay? But the reality is repentance is necessary because wrath is coming. And if you look down, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, verse 9 uh, John goes on to say, even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees, talking to what's going to happen to Israel, and every tree, therefore, that doesn't bear fruit is going to be cut down and thrown in the fire. And one of the characteristics of John's preaching is that he's heavy on the judgment to come, but it's not to condemn as much as to call you 
to repent because that is the inevitable outcome of sinful behavior. The wages of sin is, is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And it would be terrible if you came to church and someone said, oh, we're all wonderful. We're all God's beautiful children. There's nothing we must do. You go to the dentist and he sees a cavity in your tooth and he says, oh, you'll be fine. Come back for your cleaning next year. That would be malpractice, right? You go to the doctor and he says you have cancer. But he doesn't tell you what you should do about it. That would be malpractice. So here I am saying to you as a friend and a co-journeyer with Jesus to know that what is coming is the wrath of God. But the whole arc of the Bible is that because that's true, that's why God sent his son into the world. You with me? Can I show you two passages of scripture? Um, if, if you would turn in your Bible to John chapter 3, that's to the right. John chapter 3 and verse 36. Here, John records for us, this is not John the Baptist, but John the Apostle, who says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And everybody said, amen. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Turn to verse 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Everybody said, that's true. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in Jesus is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. But this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. So Jesus didn't come in to come to the world to condemn the world because the world was already condemned as it was in sin. He came to save. He came to save the world. How about Romans chapter 2? Do you have your Bible? Romans chapter 2 and verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of the kindness and forbearance and patience of God, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. It's the kindness of God, not His wrath, not His judgment, which is true, but that He has been kind to you through sending His Son is meant to lead you to repentance. And then to this audience, He said, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek glory and honor and immortality, he'll give eternal life. But for those who are seeking self and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there'll be wrath and fury. Here it is. I'm only telling you because I love you. It's true. That's coming. Why is repentance necessary? Because there's a holy God and we're all broken sinners. And there is a godly kind of sorrow that comes when we acknowledge our sinfulness 
and see him as the great savior who gave himself for us, that the right response in humility is simply to say, Lord Jesus, I want a highway that has no obstacles in it between me and you. I want you to be my savior. I turn to you. That's repentance. I must turn to you because to reject you is judgment. John the Baptist goes on in Luke chapter 3 and he, he makes a little side comment and this is my third point. Who is exempt from repentance? Who's exempt? Anybody? Well, Jesus is exempt because he never sinned. Two, two points for you there. That's good. But if you look at um, uh, verse 8 of Luke chapter 3, John continues, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. I love this next phrase. And do not even begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For God is able to take these stones and raise up children of Abraham. What was he saying? He was saying to the Pharisees, the brood of vipers, those who were self-assured, that they were saying of themselves, we're good. I don't need God. I don't need him. Don't even say to yourself that because you're in the Jewish line, you have Jewish ancestry, that you're right with God. There is no buddy pass in the kingdom. Every one of us have to respond to God. There is no exemption for those who are in America. No exemption for those who are Jewish. No exemption for those whose father was a pastor. No exemption for anyone. It is every person must come and answer to what God has done in His Son. Don't even say to God, I'm good because I have this. I've been to temple. I've been to church. I tithe. Could I show you one other passage? If you just keep your finger here and turn to the right in your Bible, Luke chapter 18. I know we'll be there in about 20 weeks, but... Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a parable in verse 9. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that, that they were righteous. He told a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. This was the parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this way, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes to all that I have. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus told this parable to say, who's exempt from repentance? Answer, no one. Every one of us must turn. There are no qualifications. Our only qualification 
to receive the grace of God is to say, I need you. I have nothing to bring. I just come to you and fall at your mercy, Lord Jesus. You died because I'm a sinner and I receive you by faith. And he does. And he cleanses. And he renews. Got it? Okay, repentance is John's message. And he's not quite finished, but he said, well, what does repentance look like? Lastly, repentance looks like, in verse um, 10, the crowd asked him, what shall we do? I want to repent. What shall we do? Well, repentance has manifestation. And it begins in verse 11. He answered them, if you have two tunics, share with him who has none. And whoever has food, do likewise. In other words, a repentant life to God is necessarily going to manifest itself in the way we treat one another and others around us. And one of the first manifestations is we don't hoard things. We're generous. We give away. Tax collectors came to him to be baptized and said, what should we do? And he said, collect no more than you're authorized to do because the tax collection system was corrupt and you could bid to be a tax collector if you would return to Rome a greater amount of taxes. So people would actually be personal contractors with Rome to collect taxes and they would bring more taxes in, but they would exploit the Jews. And so there was this great hatred between tax collectors and the Jews. Don't collect more than you're authorized to do. And then soldiers came to him and they said, what should we do? Don't extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations and be content with your wages. Do you see what's in here? Material blessings, money, taxes. Why do you think money, taxes, and possessions are in the way to describe and display your true heart of repentance? Hello? It's because we love money. It is the root of all evil, and some by pursuing it have pierced them through with many a pain. Is that money and stuff and collections all become things that we love sometimes more than God. And what John the Baptist is saying is repentance is turning. It's necessary because wrath is coming. No one is exempt from it. And when your heart is repentant toward God, there is fruit in your life that is displayed that says, my repentance is real because I don't love other stuff more than I love God, and I love God and love others. Great commandment, love God. Second is like it, love your neighbor. So a repentant heart has this desire to love other people. Why? Because I have been loved by God. We have a good, good father. I am loved by him. So I love others, right? That's what repentance shows for. So let's just take a minute. What do you do? Are you a software engineer? Okay. The software engineer said to God, John the Baptist, I repent. What should I do? I'm not sure. Don't code unethically. I'm a teacher. What should I do? Love your students. Be honest. 
I'm a college student. What should you do? John doesn't say what the Holy Spirit will say to you more than I could say. But you should ask. I'm a college student. I want my life turned to God. What should I do? He'll tell you. You're in middle school. You want your life to be turned to Jesus. What should I do? Ask him. He will tell you. Let's, let's get all the obstacles out of the way and turn our hearts to Jesus. And let's just say, Lord, what should I do? If I truly am yours, what should I do? And if there's a message that God themed here in response, you, you see the theme was in the material realm, honor God with what you have and love your neighbor. I think it goes without saying that any immoral uh, deviation, we would say, well, we, we absolutely turn away from that. And now what should my life look like? And let us pray that the Holy Spirit will simply shape us in this way. At the end of the chapter, Jesus came to be baptized by John the Baptist, not because he needed to repent of sin, but because he wanted to identify with all humanity. And when that happened at the end of the chapter, um, Jesus was baptized, verse 21 and 22, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came out of heaven and said, you are my beloved son. This is to Jesus in whom I am well pleased. And now John the Baptist from this verse is going to move pretty much off the scene and the rest of the gospel is going to focus on this beloved son with whom God is pleased. God set his pleasure on him and loved him because he left heaven, came to earth. Here he is. We're reading in Luke chapter 3 that he's now entering the scene and the rest of Luke is going to be about his life, his teaching, his miracles, and ultimately his work on the cross. Which work we're going to celebrate right now. Let's bow our heads together. Jesus is the beloved son. John came to announce him, and he encouraged people to get ready to meet him. Now let's ready our hearts to remember his sacrifice for us. God so loved the world that he gave his son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Have you trusted in Jesus? Maybe this would be the day that you would just say to God, Father, I trust in your beloved Son who died for me. Is there anything you need to turn from before you take communion this morning and just say, Lord, I want my heart to be pointed towards you. I want, I want it to be just a smooth highway of every obstacle out of the way. And I want to worship you for your full forgiveness on the cross. So in quietness, let's just pray before the Lord. You speak to God. If you're helping to serve, would you come?
Well, Father, let this be an experience of deep and transforming worship that you hear us all say we, we're turned to you and we trust in you with all of our heart. And we give thanks to you, Father, that you gave Christ to bear in his own body all of our sins and to remove them forever. And then you gave this bread as the expression of your love for us in which when we eat it, we are reminded of this final full sacrifice and forgiveness. We remember your death for us with gratitude and worship. In Jesus' name, amen.